Lord, this morning we are so thankful to you for the line of Judah. God, as we look at our own lives and we look around us, we know none of us, none of us, Lord, are worthy. None of us are worthy to stand in your presence. None of us are worthy to know you. None of us were worthy to fix what was broken in this world. But then, Lord, you sent your son Jesus into this world, and he is worthy. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in the place of sinners, and then he rose triumphantly from the grave. And that's why this morning, Lord, we pour out our song to him. He is our Savior. He is our King. He is our Lord and our Sovereign. He is the one who reigns over us. And God, we want our hearts to just be lifted up in praise, lifted up in worship to Jesus. He is the one who rescued us. God, this morning, as we look to your word, we come admitting that we need you to save us. We need you to rescue us. We need you to redeem us. We need to hear what you have to say. And so, Lord, we ask for humble hearts. Soften us. Open us up to what you have to say. Show us the world from your perspective. Show us who you are. God, we want to see you and be drawn in by your beauty, by your glory, by your wonder. Lord, as we open your word, we ask that it would speak to us. We know that all flesh is like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And that's why our hope is in your word this morning. God, we cast ourselves upon it. Show us who you are. In Jesus' name, we worship and pray. Amen. As you're taking a seat, uh, kiddos who have checked in, you can head back to the lobby now. And then um, everybody else, I want to invite you to open up your Bible to Esther, the book of Esther. Last week, we read through Esther chapter 1, and today we will be in Esther chapter 2. Esther 2. If you're looking for Esther, you can flip to the middle, probably find the Psalms. Go one back to Job and then one back to Esther. This is Esther chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashtai. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemi, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order... And his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, 
And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king, Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of, uh, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he sent the royal crown, set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is God's word. Uh, last week in Esther chapter 1, we saw a king who was doing his very best to establish heaven on earth. But we saw that heaven on earth got ripped away from him. Someone messed up his, his great plan to establish this kind of luxurious heaven on earth that he was trying to build. And so what we're going to see in chapter 2 is the king attempting to regain heaven on earth. Uh, last week was a deep dive into the brokenness of this world. But as we're going to see, as we move deeper and deeper and deeper into the book of Esther, the brokenness is just going to go down further south. The darkness is going to get darker and darker and darker. Uh, this world is a story, as we learned about last week. And what we're going to see this morning is that this is a story about not only the brokenness of this world, but this is a story about how the solutions that we have for the world are also broken. So this world is broken, and the solutions to our brokenness are broken. Uh, last week, uh, last Sunday, actually, I was talking to somebody out front about the first car that I had when I was in high school. Uh, I, had, I had this Jeep, and the reason I loved this Jeep, it wasn't really a great car, but what I loved about it is that I could take it off-road, and I could find some spots around Myrtle Beach to kind of take it off the road and find some mud. 
And so me and my buddies would take our Jeeps and trucks, and we would kind of take them off to different places. And inevitably, uh, when you take your car you know, off the beaten path, eventually you are going to get stuck. And at that moment, when you get stuck, you have one of two options. You can do the wise thing, the right thing, and you can call somebody for help. You can ask somebody else to help you get out of it. Or the other option you have is you can try with all your might, to, and you can eventually waste all your gas and all your time and all your energy trying to get yourself unstuck. You know, turning the wheels to the left, turning the wheels to the right, trying to go back and forth and back and forth. But after, I don't know, maybe a dozen times of doing this, here's what I learned. The harder and harder you try to get yourself unstu unstuck, the deeper and deeper you end up in the mud. That as you try your hardest to get yourself out, those wheels start turning and you just sink deeper and deeper and deeper. And that is the picture of Esther chapter 2, and it is the story of our world. We all know something's not right. We all know something's broken. We all know this is not heaven on earth. But in that moment, we have two options. We can either turn to God, we can either cry out to Him for help, or we can try to fix things in our own strength. And sadly, time and time again, that's what we do. We try to make things better, but it only makes things worse. Uh, in his book, You Are Not Your Own, author Alan Noble gives us some examples of ways that we try to do this in our world, ways that have gone wrong, things that we've uh, brought in as solutions, but have ended up causing more problems. Here's some of the examples he gives. He says, fast food and other prepackaged processed foods give us extra time. Energy drinks give us the alertness to work extra hours, but both deteriorate our health. Smartphones allow us to connect, uh, to, to feel connected, even as society isolates us, but it does so at the cost of addiction and privacy. Online dating opens up a world of possibilities for single people, while also dramatically increasing competition and decreasing the effort needed to deceive someone you are dating. The information explosion makes it easy for us, easier for us to fact check our politicians and more susceptible to conspiracy theories. Here's how he summarizes it. We could go on and on. There's so many more examples, but here's how he summarizes it. He says, to cope with the inhumanity of our society, we develop newer and better techniques which being based on a false view of humanity only extend the problems in new ways, requiring further coping techniques. So here's what he's trying to say. We have a problem, and so then we come up with a solution, but our solution just creates another problem, and so then we need another solution. But then every solution we find for the problem just creates another problem. And this is pretty much the best that this world has to offer. Slapping one problem on top of another one, thinking that we're making it better, when in reality, we're just sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into the mud. Last week, we considered uh, chapter one from the lens of story. We talked about how we're living in a story. God is writing a story. We looked at uh, Esther chapter one from the standpoint of story. What we're going to see in chapter two is that every story has some measure of salvation in it, some measure of deliverance. There's always some tension in a story that has to get resolved. And Esther chapter 2 is the king's salvation story. But it is not a salvation from God. This is a self-salvation story. But what we're going to see is that even as we are out here trying to fix our own problems, even as we are trying so hard to fix what is broken in this world, God is actually underneath it writing the true salvation story. And so here's what we're going to see. Two, two truths this morning about God's salvation from Esther chapter 2. Two truths about God's salvation story from Esther chapter 2. The first is this, that God brings salvation to a broken world. God brings salvation to a broken world. 
So let's get, let's get back into the story. In chapter one, the king tried to establish heaven on earth. He had control, he had power, he had authority, and he was trying to create the most luxurious experience for himself and for everyone else around him that he possibly could. But there was one person that, that he could not control. There was one person who slipped out from underneath his power, and that was his wife, the queen, Vashti. The king had called her out to parade her beauty out in front of everyone, and she refused. And this ruined, in one fell swoop, this ruined his little heaven on earth. In a drunken rage and at the bad advice from some of his counselors, he established a royal decree that the queen would never be allowed in his presence again. And so he banished her away from, from his presence. But I think after seeing what kind of king he was, I think the joke's actually on him, not on her. I mean, if I was her, I might be happy that I got banished away from him. I don't know. So what do they do? Well, the, the, the counselors and friends around him, as we dive in, dive in here into chapter 2, the counselors and friends around him, they're a little worried. They realize that as, as the king uh, sort of sobers up and realizes what has happened, they're afraid that, that he's going to wake up and, and be upset because he just lost his girl. He just lost his queen. He just lost, lost his wife. And so they come up with the idea to run a season of the Babylonian Bachelor. They go out and they find all these uh, young women, th these young virgins, and they're going to bring them in. And the, and the king is going to have an opportunity to go through one at a time and to meet the one that he, that he might fall in love with and, 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 and create a, a life with. Sound familiar? Now, this, this may at first sound like a you know, trashy reality TV show that, that some of us might watch uh, here in our day and age. But there's something a little more sober about this. There's something a little more sinister about this. The king is not interested in taking these girls on dates getting to know their families, trying to see if he can build a romance with them, this, this lifelong love story. No, here's how it's going to work. They're going to go out and they're going to bring in a bunch of young girls who are virgins. And for 12 months, they're going to go through this beautifying process. For 12 months, they're going to be pampered. But then one at a time, they're each going to be brought in for a night with the king. And one after the next, he is going to take their virginity and rob them of their innocence. And once he rattles through enough of these young girls and steals their life away from them, he'll find the one who pleases him the most, and he will make her queen. This is a sad story. This is a sick story. And this is where it brings Esther into focus. We learn that Esther will be one of these young virgins whose life will be radically altered by the king's game. One day, uh, apparently, someone notices that Esther is a beautiful woman. And so co someone comes and knocks on her door, takes her away to never return again. She's brought in, and for 12 months, she's pampered, and for 12 months, she's beautified. But then she goes in and has her night with the king, and he takes her innocence, and she becomes one of these young girls. This world is broken, and this is a picture of the deep brokenness. Chapter 1 seemed broken as the king tried to establish heaven on earth and his little heaven on earth was robbed from him, but now what he turns to is so dark, so sick, so ugly. But as we work through this passage, we're going to see this actually tells us a whole lot about the world in which you and I find ourselves in. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to unpack the brokenness. And, and before we dive into it, here's why. Here's why we need to see the brokenness of Esther chapter 2. Here's why the Bible reveals to us this kind of gross, deep brokenness like this. Uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a book titled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, and, and here's what he says. He says, A person 
has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he before she acquires an appetite for the world of grace. And by the way, he wrote that in the 1980s. We all need to come to grips with the fact that not only is this world broken, but whatever solutions we might come up with for the brokenness, those solutions are also broken. So we dive in. Verse 1 says, After these things, when the anger of the king of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Now, it's important to consider, as, we, as we're going to work through the, uh, continue to work through the book of Esther, we're going to see that anger is this strong theme. Uh, anger pops up again and again and again in this story because anger is one of those realities that we all have to face in this broken world. When we analyze our anger, we actually find out what matters to us. When we have those frusta- frustrations, when we have irritations, when we have outbursts, when we're upset we find out what we care about. And what we see from this king, what we see from Esther chapter 2 about this king is that most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time when we are angry, it is because we think that we are God. We want life to be under our control. We want life to work out the way we think it should. We want the people around us to do what we want them to do. We want to be at the center of the universe. And when something goes awry, when we get knocked out of the center of the universe, when something that we think we have control over slips outside of our control, we get angry, we get frustrated, we get irritated. This world is an angry world. It is full of selfish anger, and it is broken. Uh, And then when we step back and we just sort of examine this story as a whole, this chapter as a whole, what we can't help but notice is how it uh, grossly highlights the superficiality of this world. The Bible uh, in in no way is trying to say to us that we can't uh, identify someone as beautiful, right? It's not wrong to be attracted to someone based on how they look. But here's what we see in this chapter, and here's what we see in our world, that so many times someone's worth is defined by what they look like on the outside, That that, that the essence of who they are comes down to whether or not they look good on the outside or not. And when this, when this gets entered in to a highly sexualized environment, that creates a very dangerous situation where people are treated more like objects than they are as human beings made in the image of God. This is our world where people are objectified. And all you have to do is to look, for example, in the United States alone, in the United States alone, the porn industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. We live in a very superficial and sexualized world, and it is broken. Uh, One more thing I want to highlight about this world. Uh, Once the king chooses Esther to be queen, verse 18 says, Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, we have to be careful when we're reading Esther chapter 2, because if if you're not careful, you kind of begin to read the story, and all of a sudden, you you start to almost think that it's like a good thing for Esther that she becomes queen. 
I mean, we're going to see later that, yes, God is behind this and God is sovereign over it. But we're almost led to think like, oh, wow, you know, maybe this is like our modern day royal weddings, you know, where Esther got an upgrade and she got to go in and, and, and kind of marry the, marry the king. You know, he's throwing her a feast. You know, this is kind of nice, right? What we see from this king is that he is actually just a really good manipulator. Uh, what, what he has done is he has basically stolen young girls from families. And he goes through this process where he rattles through them to find the one who pleases him the most. But once he finds the queen, in order to keep his political ratings high, he chops taxes in half so that everybody, everybody will be happy with him. He hands out a bunch of favors to all of his friends. And he throws this feast for Esther as if throwing her this feast is going to make her be okay with what's just happened. Now, let's, let's not get this twisted. This king is a manipulator. And this world that we live in is full of manipulation, where power and money and influence are used to get our little heaven on earth. That when we want what we want bad enough, we hurt people, we lie to people, we do whatever we have to do to get our way. Now, it's easy to look at this king and think, man, what a terrible guy. And I mean, if that's what you're thinking, that's true. Um, This is not a great guy. This is not someone that we want to admire. But at the same time, we can't help but, as we look at him, see little traces of ourself in him. You know, at first, maybe we want to distance ourselves from what's happening in the story. But we can't help but realize that if this is the world, and if this paints a picture of our world, then in some way it probably paints a picture of us. In some ways that we get angry because we think we're God and we want everything to work out on our own timeline and under our our control in little ways that we manipulate other people, and in ways that we are superficial and judge people by what they look like on the outside, there are certainly ways in which uh, this convicts us. And inevitably, as we go about our lives, as we, as we sort of just go out and live, if we're paying attention and if we're honest, life will expose the worldliness in us. Um, when Allie and I got married, I learned uh, pretty quickly uh, that birthdays were a big deal to her. And uh, it was sort of you know, part of her family and everything, and I didn't always do a great job early on uh, with, with recognizing that and, and capitalizing on that, but I've, I've, I've learned. Uh, but for whatever reason, I feel like you know, I, told her, I, I told her that birthdays weren't that big of a deal to me, and I'm not really sure you know, why I said that. I think maybe I just thought it was like a manly thing to say, you know, like, oh, yeah, birthday, I'm, I'm fine without my birthday or whatever. But uh, a couple years ago, life kind of got crazy, and some you know, things are going on, and my birthday kind of came and it went and, you know, we did a little something, but it wasn't like super special. It wasn't like crazy, you know, exciting or you know, anything like that. And I realized that over the next couple of days, I was just kind of like brewing inside, you know, I was just frustrated and irritated and, and upset. And at some point I realized how silly it was. I had told her that it wasn't a big deal to me. And maybe I even thought I was, maybe I was delusional enough to think that I, I didn't want a day where I could be the center of the universe and everyone would, you know, tell me how special I was. But then when it happened, when I, when I felt like I was kind of set off to the side, I realized I actually care a whole lot more about myself than I think. And this is what life does to us. You know, we read a story like Esther chapter 2, and, and we see this guy, and we see how terrible he is, and, and we distance ourselves from it. But then we go about our life, and if we're honest, we could probably all think about little ways that we express selfish anger, that we have frustration, irritation, we give someone the cold shoulder, and it's not really for a good reason. It's not because some godly, righteous reason to be angry. It's actually just because we like to be in control and we like to be God and we like for other people to do what we like them to do. And when they don't, we get upset about it. And I'm sure if we assess our own lives, we could certainly find ways that we have treated other people like objects 
instead of treating them like true human beings who've been made in the image of God. And I'm sure if we sat here long enough, we could remember moments in our life where we really weren't honest, we really weren't genuine, we really weren't sincere, but instead we were just trying to manipulate other people in our life to try to get our little heaven on earth, to try to achieve the life that we so desperately long for, that we would be willing to to push people and their needs and loving them off to the side in order to get what, what we really want. So we look at this uh, story and we see the brokenness of the world, but we can't help but admit that the brokenness of the world is in us and the brokenness of this world is because of us. We have collectively all joined to create this world that is so broken. But maybe you're thinking, okay, but why is it so important to come to grips with the brokenness? You know, like, why are we taking, why did I come to church today in order to hear how bad things are? Uh, maybe you've seen uh, that Gordon Ramsay has revamped his show, Kitchen Nightmares. Um, great little show. He, he, you know, he goes in and he, he helps these uh, restaurants you know, figure out what's going wrong and, and help them right the ship. But one of the things I've noticed after watching a few episodes is that the people in charge, you know, maybe it's the owner, maybe it's the chef, they all have such a hard time admitting just how bad it is. And so what he'll do, he'll show up at the restaurant and he'll just basically order everything on the menu. And one item at a time will come out. He'll take one bite and he'll just say, this is terrible. Take it back. And he sends it back into the kitchen. And he just sort of does it over and over and over. But then the thing to me that stands out the most, like the thing that normally gets them like on the hook, is he'll just go sort of wandering back into the back and he will check out the freezer and the refrigerator. And I'm telling you, he he finds things in those freezers and refrigerators that if you saw them, you would never want to eat at a restaurant ever again. He calls them, he, he forces them to come back, and he says, look at this. Look at this rotten stuff. Look at this gross stuff. Would you want to eat this? And he sticks their face in it. He makes them honestly own up to just how broken it is, just how messed up it is. And then only when, they're, when they come face-to-face with the brokenness are they ready to ask for help. And this is what Esther, really chapter 1 and chapter 2 are all about. It's God trying to show us how broken this world is. That this world is full of anger, full of pride, full of selfishness. It is deformed. It is ugly. This is not a pretty picture. But this is so many times the picture of our own hearts. So what does God want from us? Well, he wants us to see that our self-salvations don't work. Our self-salvations only drive us deeper into the mud. God wants us to turn to him for salvation. And really, in a way, that's what brings us to what the whole book of Esther is all about. You heard Nick mention, if you were here at the beginning, you heard Nick mention that here's a book of the Bible that doesn't mention God. Ten chapters. His name's not here. Prayer's not mentioned. Worship's not mentioned. So what's the story about? Well, this story is about salvation. This story is about God intervening to deliver Israel from certain death. But what we have to step back and ask is this. What was the purpose of Israel in the first place? Why does it matter if Israel does, as we'll see next week, if Israel does end up getting exterminated off the face of the planet, if every single Jew is killed, what's the big deal with that? Why why is that such a big deal? Other than the fact that it's terrible to hurt hurt people and, and murder people. What's the big deal? Why create a story like this and put it in the Bible? What we see is that the purpose of Israel in the first place was actually God's plan to bring about salvation to the world. God had promised to bring a Messiah, and He had said that He was going to bring this Messiah through Israel. And so God saving His people, Israel, was was a commitment to God saving the world. 
Jesus Christ came into this world because of what we're going to see God do through Esther. And that means, guys, that means this broken world that we've been talking about, this broken world that you and I are a part of, that we see every day, that we breathe in all day long, God is saving this world. Jesus Christ came into this world for selfish, abusive, angry kings. Jesus Christ came into this world for sex addicts. Jesus Christ came into this world for people who manipulate others and who objectify others. That is who Jesus came for. And so here's how this lands on us. It lands on us in in two ways. On the one hand, what it means is that Jesus came to save us. Every single one of us here this morning, we don't just live in in the world. We are contaminated with the world. We've contributed to the brokenness of this world. And that means Jesus came for us. Jesus came into this world to rescue you, to rescue me. But here's the other thing it means. It means that as we go about it, as we're examining the world, as we're creating a mental image of how we think about the world around us, we can't forget that God is interested in saving this world. That yes, this world is dark, But God wants to use us to draw people out of darkness and into light. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while, and and as you've walked with God, you've actually changed. Your life has gotten better. You look back, and you don't maybe do some of the things that you used to do. But the temptation with that, as we grow and as we become more and more like Jesus, the temptation is that we then look around at other people and we think, man, why can't they just get their act together? Why can't they figure it out? Why don't they see the world like I see the world? Why don't they understand the world like I understand the world? Why why do they keep doing all this dumb stuff? And we forget the grace of God in our own life. We forget that we were part of the group who was in darkness at one point, that we needed to be saved. And so Esther chapter 2 confronts us. It, It confronts us and it reminds us that God is saving this world. Jesus didn't come to condemn this world, but to save this world. So God's salvation comes... To a broken world. Now, in a moment, we're going to transition. We're going to begin to talk about um, the, the story of God's salvation instead of the story of self-salvation. But before we do that, I just want to make one, one last comment about the self-salvation story uh, before, we, before we transition to the God's salvation story. Here's what we see in Esther chapter 2. We see a pattern that you and I are tempted with all the time. In Esther chapter 2, this, the king's salvation story, his self-salvation story, we could label it salvation by distraction. Salvation by distraction. Here's what I mean. The king wakes up from his slumber. He, he sobers up. His anger that, that he was so you know, you know, upset about, it, it, it resolves, and he actually remembers the queen. He remembers what he's done. He remembers that he made a stupid, stupid drunken mistake. And at that moment... He's at a crossroads. He can either admit what he's done. He can either acknowledge his, his, his problem. He can either try his best to get Vashti back into his life because he knows he messed up. Or what ends up happening is his buddies come along and they introduce a distraction. Rather than dealing with the problem, rather, rather than owning up to what he's done, he finds something in his life to just change the subject, to move on, to take his awareness somewhere else. This is what we call salvation by distraction. 
It's when you and I get to that moment of a crossroads where we know we've done wrong, we know we're guilty, we, we know this world is broken, and we, we almost, through that brokenness, are able to admit it and look back up to God, but instead, we introduce some distraction that just changes the subject, that just takes our mind off of the things that we really need to be thinking about. It's one way that we pursue salvation through our own strength. I recently read an article on on the Harvard uh, Business Review about distraction. I just want to read a a little bit to you about this. He says, anyone who gets an urge to eat a snack, check their newsfeed, or go on social media when they're bored or anxious can relate to this feeling, that restless contraction in your stomach or chest. It lets you know that something is off. Your brain says, do something, and the action or the distraction makes you feel better. The problem is that often distractions are not healthy or helpful. No one can binge on food or booze or Netflix forever. In fact, it's dangerous to do so. Your brain will become habituated to these behaviors. And this is, I think, the most important line. You eventually will begin to need more and more of them to get the outcome you're accustomed to. Salvation by a distraction is attempting to just change the subject. It's not wanting to deal with the problem. But here's the problem with salvation by distraction. It doesn't actually work. We just have to go from one distraction to the next. That is the best that this world has to offer. An attempt to turn our gaze somewhere else, to offer us some other meaningful distraction. How many times in our lives have we gotten to that point where we feel the conviction, right? We feel the guilt of our lives. We feel how we're wasting our time. We feel the foolishness of the world. And we have this moment where we could turn to God. We could open up to Him. We could admit our fault, admit the worthlessness of this world, but instead we seek out some diversion. So what do we do? Uh, Well, I want to give us three R's to consider in light of salvation by distraction. Three R's to consider in light of salvation by distraction. Realize, repent, and replace. Realize, repent, and replace. So here's the first step. The first step is that we need to begin to realize how it is that we seek to distract ourselves when we have moments of tension. So where do I turn when I'm frustrated? Where do I turn when I'm tired? Where do I turn when I'm lonely? Where do I turn when I feel ashamed or I feel guilty? We begin to just assess and, and realize how it is that we seek distractions instead of seeking the Lord. But then the next step is to repent. So as we begin to realize where we turn to distractions, we turn from them. Sometimes this includes getting other people to help us. It means gathering other people around us who can help us turn. It might mean trying to build new habits in our life. But it's, it's a decision. It's a decisive moment where we change our mind and we say, I don't want to distract myself anymore, but I want to deal with God and deal with life as it really is. But then that leads to the third and most important step, which is to replace Replace is the fruit of repentance. It is when we actually begin to seek God, life in God, strength from God, victory from God, as a proactive way of life, rather than as a reactive, oopsie, I messed up, I need something way of life. And as we begin to seek God in this proactive way, seeking Him for life, seeking Him for strength, seeking Him for victory, we find more and more and more that our hearts are taken up with the wonder, the beauty, and the glory of who he is. So let's all consider this. 
Let's realize our distractions. Let's repent of our distractions. But most importantly, let's replace our distractions with God himself. So this is one story at play in Esther chapter 2. It is the self-salvation story. But underneath the self-salvation story, underneath the king's attempt to regain heaven on earth, we're going to see God's salvation story. And so finally, second and finally this morning, God brings salvation through a broken world. So God brings salvation to a broken world, and God brings salvation through a broken world. To see how this works, uh, we're going to uh, kind of focus in on two sections of our passage, verses 5 to 7, and then 19 through 23. So let's start with verses 5 to 7. This is Esther 2, 5 to 7. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So here we are introduced to Esther. This is her little biography that introduces us to her life. Here's what I want you to see as we work through from now to the end. God isn't afraid of the brokenness in this world. God actually picks up the broken pieces and works through them to bring about salvation. Uh, I'm sure everybody here has heard of Leonardo da Vinci. He's famous for uh, his paintings, The Mona Lisa and The Last Supper. Uh, but something that um, da Vinci's also famous for are his charcoal paintings, his, his char charcoal drawings. Uh, charcoal art is, is kind of this interesting thing. You know, it's taking something that normally would be trash, right? It's this burnt piece of wood that seemingly has no use, seemingly has no value. But then in the right hands, that, that piece of trash, that burnt piece of wood is taken and it's used for, for something amazing. It's used to create something beautiful. And what Esther chapter 2 is beginning to whet our appetite for as, as we continue to work through this whole book of Esther is we're going to see how God takes things that we think are trash, things that we think are worthless, things that we think nothing good could ever come from that. And yet God is going to use those very things to bring salvation to this world. And so the first, the first, the first one is this. Let's start with Esther herself. Um, Esther was a Jew, and at this point in history, the Jews were not in a good place. They had been taken captive and exiled away from their homeland and brought to somewhere else. So just imagine one day if someone showed up at your house with uh, you know, you know, some kind of weapon, they forced you out of your home, and you were relocated to go live somewhere else. This was the Jews. This was Esther. She wasn't living where her family, where her heritage was from. She wasn't in the promised land that God had given uh, his people. Now, beyond this, uh, what we learn about Esther is that she also had a, a uniquely difficult life in that both of her parents had died. And not only had they died, but they had died apparently at such a young age that she needed someone to look after her. And so her cousin, Mordecai, uh, took her in and adopted her as his own daughter. So I don't know what you think of when you think of Esther. You know, I don't know what picture comes to your mind. I don't know how you conceive of her. 
But here's how, you, how we need to think of her if we're going to understand what God is doing. Esther is a refugee orphan who has been abducted as a sex slave by a Persian king. That's Esther. That's her bio. That's her story. And so the question, the tension that builds up in chapter 2, and the question we're left with is, can God use someone so obscure, so unlikely, so far down and out, could God use someone like that to bring his plan to fruition? Could God take someone in the most unlikely situation, like a, like a burnt piece of coal in an artist's hands, and actually paint a beautiful picture with this life? Well, if we're familiar at all with the Bible, we know that the, resound, the resounding answer is yes. And it's not only yes in Esther's case, but it is yes all throughout the Bible. We think about someone like Joseph, who was hated by his brothers, and they hated him so much that they actually sold him into slavery. But here's what they didn't know that them selling Joseph into slavery would put him in the exact position that he would need to be to save them years later when a famine hit the land. This is how God works in his grace. Or we think about someone like Moses. Moses was set up to be the greatest prophet in the entire Old Testament. Moses delivered the law of God to the people of God, and guess what? Moses had a stutter. Moses wasn't a good, a good talker, and yet he was chosen to be a talker. And God used him to be one of the greatest talkers in all the Old Testament. We think about someone like Rahab, who was a prostitute, who God used to conquer the city of Jericho. We think about David. David was chosen as the king of Israel, and yet when Samuel showed up to Jesse's house to pick one of his sons to be king, Jesse thought it was so unlikely that David would be the one, he didn't even invite him to the party. Jesse thought, of course, sure, it'll be one of my big, burly, old, young you know, men who can you know, fight some warriors and, and do some damage and have, you're handsome. You know, surely, David, David's off doing his own little thing. He's a little boy, and yet that's exactly who God chose to be the king. And I think the apex of this throughout all the scriptures, without a doubt, is our Savior Jesus Christ. The King of the universe, the sovereign one who created all things, comes into this earth not with fanfare, not into a palace, not to some celebration for him. He comes into this world with no room in the inn, a baby in a manger, having to run for his life to Egypt, because there's some crazy king who's killing all the young boys for fear of him. So they run off to Egypt, and then they come back, and he grows up in a place called Nazareth, where one of his future disciples would later say, can anything good come from Nazareth? This is our Savior, and this is how God works. And so you may be here this morning, and you, you may think of yourself, I have nothing to offer. I don't have the education. I don't have the background. I don't have the experience. I didn't grow up around God in the church. There's no way God could use me. If that's how you feel about yourself, you might be exactly who God will use. This is Esther's story. She's the most obscure, the most unlikely person, and yet God will bring about salvation through her. So let's never write anyone off, and let's certainly never write ourselves off God isn't asking us to be the power to accomplish the mission. God is asking us to simply to just say yes, to put our blank check on the table, to trust that he can pick up a piece of charcoal, he can pick up something that seems worthless, that seems insignificant, and he can create something beautiful out of it. 
He can save the world through a refugee orphan sex slave. Now, what takes us even deeper into how God brings salvation through this broken world is to consider why it is that the Jews were in exile in the first place. Why are Mordecai and Esther even living there? Why are they even in, in, the, in the space where there's an opportunity for her to be taken advantage of in this way? Are they just some victims of some act that just happened to come against them? No. The reason Israel was there is because of their own sin. The reason they had been abducted and exiled was because they were under the judgment of God. And so you look at Esther and you think about her and you think, could there be anyone in the world who would feel more forsaken by God? She is ripped away from her homeland. She's ripped away from her people. Her parents are dead. The one person who cared about her in this world, she's now separated from. And she is forced to enter into a marriage with a Gentile, which, by the way, back then would have been a really big deal because God has told his people not to marry Gentiles. How could this not make her feel forsaken by God? She's cursed. All the check marks that it means in the Old Testament to be cursed, she's checking all the boxes. But here's what Esther chapter 2 is teaching us. Here's what this whole book of Esther is teaching us is that God actually brings salvation through judgment. Our God is a God who brings blessing from curse. Our God is a God who brings life from death. And this is what ties Esther's story into the greater story of the Bible. See, at the cross where Jesus was crucified, you know, what is happening? What is happening? When the Son of God, the perfect one, is being nailed to a cross, He isn't just setting an example for us. He is bearing the judgment for our sins. But God, in that moment at the cross, He's bringing salvation through judgment. He's bringing the utmost blessing through the utmost curse. He is bringing life through death. He is bringing resurrection through crucifixion. So there are real moments when you and I, we add up the details of our lives and it, it, the only thing we can imagine is God must not be here. He must have forsaken me. I must be cursed. I must be forgotten by God. But the cross teaches us and the story of Esther teaches us, no, 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 no. God actually brings salvation through judgment. God actually does his best work as he works through the curse, as he works through death, to bring about resurrection life. So we're seeing how God brings salvation through this broken world, how God picks up the charcoal, the, the trash, the things that we would expect to be off to the side, never to be seen from again. God picks those things up and he's writing the story with it. He's painting this beautiful picture with it. But there's one more clue at the end of chapter 2 about how God works through the brokenness of this world. Uh, this little section, verses 19 to 23, it seems to kind of not fit. It kind of seems to be an outlier in this chapter. But I think as we move through the story, we'll see that God is simply showing us how he's putting his people in the right place to save Israel. So let's read verses 19 to 23. It says, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. 
Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now we're going to continue to see as we work through the book of Esther, we're going to continue to marvel at how God is sovereignly working to bring about his plan in the world. I mean, by the end of the story, we're going to see just how amazing God is. But for this morning, what we need to see is this, that God brings salvation through the sinful actions of people. God brings salvation even through the sinful actions of people. See, the only reason Mordecai was able to get the message that he heard to the king is because his daughter Esther had been robbed away from him and gone through that process and been made queen. So if she's not queen, Mordecai overhears this, he's got no route to the king. And then on top of it, here's these two eunuchs. And they're planning this murderous plot of the king. And that's what Mordecai overhears. Mordecai overhears it. He tells Queen Esther, his daughter, she tells the king. And now we see that Mordecai's name gets written down. This will be the key to the story. In a few chapters, we'll see that the Jews were facing a wholesale execution. The Jews, there was an attempt on the Jews to exterminate every single one of them. But Mordecai is going to be exactly in the right place to save Israel. And it will all be because of the sinful actions of other people. This king, he's selfish. This king, he's only thinking about himself. He's trying to create his own little heaven on earth. He's manipulating everyone. He's abusing everyone. And yet, that is exactly how God gets his people where they need to be in order to bring about salvation. But this, again, this isn't just the story of Esther. This echoes the greater story of redemption that's, that, that traces throughout the whole Bible. This is the story of Jesus. That as he is arrested and falsely accused and beaten and mocked and slapped and spit on and then ultimately crucified and murdered, he is being sinned against at the highest level. He is going through something that if you didn't know any better, you would look and you would think evil has won. All that's wrong in the world has conquered. Everything beautiful and good and right in this world has, has been undone as you look at the cross. And yet God, through the sinful actions of people, was saving this sinful world. God was sovereignly orchestrating our salvation through the sins that we committed. This is Esther's story. This is the story of redemption. And in all reality, it's the story for all of us. We look around at this world and we see the evil and sometimes it just feels like evil's winning. Sometimes we, we wonder, God, shouldn't you let the righteous people win? You know, shouldn't you let your people always be on top in this world? But then we see Esther chapter 2, and we realize God is taking the brokenness of this world, including the sinful actions of people, and he is bringing salvation through the brokenness. 
He's not afraid to grab the scraps. He's not afraid to grab the charcoal. He's not afraid to grab those things that we would think in our minds could never bring about anything good. And those become the very things that God uses to save the world. So sometimes when God feels most distant, when we feel most cursed, when we feel most victimized, God is actually working in it to bring blessing through curse. So here's the deal. Um, What have we seen in Esther chapter 2? We've seen two stories of salvation. One, the self-salvation story. One story where we go about trying to fix our own problems, but as we go about trying to fix our own problems, we just create more problems, and then we need more solutions that just create more problems, and the harder we try, we just sink deeper and deeper and deeper into the mud. But then Esther chapter 2 has shown us a picture of God without naming him, Without explicitly coming forward, we're seeing how God works. That it's in those moments when he seems most absent. It's in those moments when we feel forsaken. It's in those moments when the world is against us that we know God is actually for us. We see our God all wise, all loving, all powerful, all sovereign. And we come to a crossroads. Here it is. Do we trust ourselves or do we trust this God? Do we trust that we can fix the problems or do we cast our our lives into the hands of Jesus? Say, Lord, take me, use me. I'm yours. I need you. So uh, whether it's for the first time this morning or maybe it's the 10,000th time for you, my prayer is that we'd all leave here today fully committed to trusting the Lord. Admitting, Admitting we've seen the ugliness, we've seen the brokenness, We've seen how our distractions from our distractions just keep ruining our lives. And we turn to the Lord and say, I'm yours. Take me. I belong to you. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we read your word and there are these powerful applications where we need to leave doing stuff. But Lord, sometimes in your word, you just show us yourself. You just show us who you are. You show us that you're a God who is so much wiser than we are, who's so much more powerful than we are, who's so much more gracious than we are, who doesn't work in the ways that we think would work. And God, we just ask this morning that you would impress upon our hearts who you really are. That in these moments when we don't feel like we have what it takes or in these moments when we feel abandoned by you, forsaken by you, when the the circumstances in our life seem helpless and hopeless, God, would you turn our eyes back to you, the real, true, living God, the God of the cross, the God of the resurrection, the God who brings blessing out of curse, the God who brings salvation out of judgment, the God who brings life out of death. God, would you turn our eyes to see you that we might know you and love you, enjoy you, and, and ultimately, Lord, trust you. We ask for your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray.